Welcome to How Story Works from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm concept developer Dr. Kelly Jones. We're breaking up How Story Works into four seasons following four topics, character, conflict, structure, and magic. This is season three, structure. Today on How Story Works, the conversation is about narrative units following along with pages 76 to 92 in the book, the second half of chapter five, structure and theory for those following along on the Kindle versions or the audiobook. Story is power, and we don't leave power on the table. So let's get to work. All right, Lonnie Diane Rich, last time... We talked about structure theory. We always like to reinforce learning. So what are the biggest things that you want folks to keep in mind as we move into talking about narrative units? All right. Well, one of the things that I keep hitting, the big gong that I keep hitting is like this this one pillar of basically everything you're going to do craft-wise in a book, and that is your narrative that is goal-based central narrative conflict so that you can build your structure based on that conflict. Um, And also remember, as we discussed in the episodes on conflict, that there's a difference between narrative conflict and mundane conflict. Just remember that narrative is goal-based and mundane conflict is just people disagreeing or arguing or bickering. Um, The central narrative conflict, narrative conflict is any goal-based conflict, but the central narrative conflict is the goal-based narrative conflict that you are building your entire structure upon. So the big moments in your structure are going to escalate that central narrative conflict. You may have other narrative conflicts that are kind of running around and having fun in other areas, but the one that your story starts and ends with, that's the central narrative conflict. So just as a reminder, any structure will work uh, as long as it does the sea change um, um, format, right? Start the conflict, escalate the conflict, end the conflict where a winner is decided, change the world. And how this world has changed defines the meaning of what you've done in your story. So those are the concepts that you want to kind of keep an eye on. Okay, dokie. And that central narrative conflict, like, because like you said, there can be mm-hmm. lots of different conflicts sure. in a story, mm-hmm. even different narrative And conflicts. I encourage it. Pack yes. as many conflicts in that suitcase as you can. <laughs> <laughs> but you're looking at the through line. I'm looking at the conflict that we base the structure of the composition on, like whatever the, and again, composition is one of those things we're going to be talking about a little bit later in this episode, uh, but a composition is any completed uh, narrative conflict. Um, so you, uh, anything that you're, you're basing your entire book on, your novel, uh, your movie, your graphic novel, whatever your, your composition is, um, is going to start and end with a particular kind of conflict that is your central narrative conflict. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. And then how you're structuring that story, mm-hmm. right, may depend on the form and the length and how much you're working with. Absolutely. But you're going to kind of pull from different narrative units to build that structure. Exactly. Which is why I wanted to talk about narrative units, because understanding what it is that you're working with. I remember when I started writing, like I had an idea of what a scene was, but I couldn't tell you. I had a feeling for what an act was, but I couldn't really tell you. And people were talking about beats. And the thing is too, we're gonna talk about beats in a little bit, but there are so many different definitions of beats within writing itself. Um, Sometimes it's just a breath. 
Sometimes you're saying somebody like in a screenplay, you'll be like, you know, holds for a beat or silence for a beat. And that's like a heartbeat. But there are other actually usages of beat, you know, which we are, we're actually going to use one of them today when we talk about narrative units. Uh, so it's, sometimes there's a lot of things that have the same word that is used in different ways, especially in writing. Uh, that can be confusing. Um, but understanding the building blocks that you're using to create this story, to create this structure, I think is really important. And it took me a while to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. So then kind of we're going to sort of start with the big picture idea Mm -hmm. of a narrative unit and Mm -hmm. then kind of break that down. Exactly. And define our terms as we go, because (laughs) that is what we love to do. That is what we do. Okay. So kick us off. What is a narrative unit? Okay. A narrative unit is basically how we express events within a story. Um, And to understand an event... Um, imagine a white empty room. Uh, you can stare into that room as much as you like, but if nothing changes, then it is essentially the same space, just an empty white room. That is your status quo. Until something happens to change it, it remains the same and no events have happened. So events are just an expression of change and narrative units are how we build those changes into our stories. Um, and narrative units nest, uh, like matryoshka dolls, the Russian nesting dolls that you see where there's a little tiny doll and then there's it goes inside the bigger one and the bigger one and the bigger one um so bigger narrative units are comprised of smaller narrative units so in your empty white room Mm -hmm. how would you know that there has been an event like what would be okay here is now a narrative unit because something has changed. So if anything changes within that room, if a door opens, if a window opens, if an open window closes, right? Whatever the status quo is that you start with, as soon as anything changes, that an event has occurred, something has changed. Okay. And so when we're looking at narrative units, like here is your your possible tool set mm-hmm. for structure. You've got beats, you've got scenes, you've got anchor scenes, you've got acts, and then you're building this into a composition. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about each one of those. If yes. we're looking at our nesting dolls, at right? Nesting we're going to start dolls. with the littlest one, and then we're going to put it inside another one, and we're going to put it inside another one, and we're going to put it inside another one. So let's start with beats. Okay. The, the tiniest of the nesting dolls is a beat. That is a single unit of narrative change, meaning it is one moment in which something happens. And there are usually small things that, uh, and these beats are usually small things that combine to form a scene, which is a sequence of chronologically continuous beats. And this is the thing with the scene that always threw me is that it is chronologically continuous, that a scene is something that happens all in one time and continuous, continuous time in that space. Um, and so that was the thing that always kind of threw me off. Um, it had been defined for me early in my writing as everything that happens in the same time and place. Mm. But the thing is, is that if you have a scene that starts like, you know, I would look at the West Wing and the Aaron Sorkin walk and talks, right? So it starts in the Oval Office and then ends in Josh's office, but that's one scene, but they moved from like three different places, Mm -hmm. you know? So Mm -hmm. for me, um, I found it greatly simplified things if I didn't think about it in terms of location, but I thought about it in terms of time, that this is chronologically continuous series of beats, um, which culminate in a larger narrative change. Um, So for example, like let's say you have a series of beats of a couple fighting in a restaurant, constantly being interrupted in the process by a waiter 
waiter. When the waiter interrupts for the third time, one member of the couple throws their napkin down on the table and says, I don't want any goddamn water to the waiter when they really want to say it to their partner and leaves. And the remaining partner looks back up at the waiter and says, yes, please. I'd love some water. Thank you. And I'm sorry. Um, so each beat in their argument is what's building up this scene. Um, all of that interrupted at various, you know, punctuations by the waiter. Um, and then the final beat ends in the argument with one partner leaving and the other trying to be kind to the waiter. And this has a lot of change in it. We have a couple that was together at the beginning and the end, they are separated. We have a waiter who's just trying to do his job who's being highly distressed. Um, always be kind to your wait staff. Thank you very much. Um, and, and we have all of that escalation going on within that particular scene. The couple is not the same at the end of the scene as they are at the beginning, but each of those beats of argument that happened within that scene contributed to all of that monumental change until the one partner just, you know, throws their napkin down and leaves. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of how that works. Yeah. So if you were, you know, outlining this or, mm-hmm. um, or even kind of s- setting up your structure, like in a spreadsheet, mm-hmm. you might call that the restaurant fight scene. Yes. Within there would be each beat mm-hmm. of that conversation mm-hmm. that is interrupted. Yes. Right. And each interruption is then a beat. Is right? then a beat and an escalation. Right. Yes. Because it increases the tension in the room. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and I love that on the third one, something happens because you know my love for a three beat. A three beat, again, which is another usage of the beat um, in story writing. And so a three beat, just to go slightly off topic for just a minute. Yeah, sorry. That's the risk of always podcasting with me. No, This is not in the script. But like... I love a three beat. I love a three beat too. Okay, here's the thing about a three beat. Um, When we talk about a three beat, we're not talking necessarily about beats as in narrative units, right? We are talking about thematically hitting one thing three times. And here's the reason why three, like you remember on Schoolhouse Rock, three is a magic number. Three is a magic number. And the reason for that is that if you are trying to get something across to somebody and you do it three times, that will emerge in their brain as a pattern. Human beings have survived as long as we have because of this lizard brain brain ability to identify a pattern. If the lion comes and eats one of your people every single day at noon, you learn to be up in the tree every day at (laughs) noon. Once that happens three times, you're like, bitch, that's a pattern. I'm in the tree, right? So this is how we've survived. This is um, such an important way of emphasizing theme of uh, like really kind of nailing home the meaning of what it is that you're trying to do. When you do something three times, it makes a difference. If you had this scene in which they got interrupted twice by the waiter, and the waiter never returned, your reader at the end of that scene is going to be, whether they consciously know it or not, waiting on that third beat, right? They're holding space in their brain because they saw something happen two times. One time, whatever. Two times, you're on your guard. Three times, I was right, right? Uh So the thing is that that actually, again, to be way off topic on this. Um, But it is important that we talk about it because I am talking about beats. And so identifying all of the different ways in which as a writer, you are going to hear the word beat and knowing that they are separate things is really important. Um, But if you deliberately have the waiter come in twice in this scene and then don't have them come in a third time, that is not a failure. That is a feature, not a bug. Because what you're doing is you are without like really making it terribly obvious, you are keeping 
keeping your reader on edge. So if you are writing suspense, if you are writing something where you want your reader to not be comforted too much, to be on edge, to be holding that brain space for that one, two and waiting for the third shoe to drop, basically, uh, that could be also something that you do. So always remember three beats are a thing and you can use them in com- to complete in a, in a particular scene or particular place, or you can put two down and then make your reader so incredibly tense while they wait for the third. There are so many things that you can do if you understand what a three beat does. That said, a three beat is not a narrative unit. That is a separate thing. That is just hitting something three times within a particular um, frame of story. Um, and again, that could be something you hit it three times in a scene. You can hit it three times in the book and the third time is at the end. Um, there are a ton of things that you can do with a three beat. Three beats are so much fun. I believe I did talk about them in an earlier episode of How Story Works. So you can go and hunt that down. And I'm pretty sure it's there. But if it's not there... I'll make another one. I will do another <laughs> one on three beats because I absolutely love them. Yeah. But a beat in terms of narrative unit is a, is a, an event. It is a unit of change. Um, and again, a beat can be a small unit of change that then escalates into the end of the scene where we have a bigger unit of change. Um, so after that, we've got beats and we've got scenes defined, um, is the anchor scene, which is basically a varietal of scene, you know, um, that significantly escalates the central narrative conflict. Uh, next week, when we are talking about the basic three act structure with seven anchor scenes, we will do a lot more um, explanation and examples of this. Uh, but for right now, just hold it in your head that an anchor scene um, is a type of scene significantly escalates the central narrative conflict and will often uh, transition us from one act into another um, because it is so incredibly pivotal and because it always escalates that central narrative conflict. So one of the things too is when you're looking at all of the scenes that you've written in a book, especially when you're in your revision phase, if you look at your anchor scenes and see where those big moments are in that, that escalation of the central narrative conflict, that can give you a good sense of how your pacing works as well, which is really another handy thing about understanding your anchor scenes where they are and how they're functioning. So I've mentioned acts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to move into the act, um, which is a sequence of scenes, right? Scenes are made up of beats. Acts are made up of scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a sequence of scenes that work together to alter the relationship of the protagonist to the central narrative conflict, bringing on a new approach toward or perspective on that conflict. Um, so that was one of the things when I first started trying to figure out how stories work. Um, I was looking at acts and I kind of knew what an act was, but I could never get a definition that felt solid to me that I was like, oh, I understand that. And it wasn't until I started looking at anchor scenes and how they change the nature of the conflict um, to understand how those scenes, how the acts worked. So an act, like your act one sets up all of your stuff that's going on. You establish your conflict. Um, But at the end of act one is the moment when the protagonist looks the conflict in the eye and says, you and me, let's go, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So that is, but in the beginning of your story, your protagonist may not even be aware that a conflict is coming, you know, because we haven't had the inciting incident yet. So they may not be aware that this conflict is gonna happen. In the first act, they're figuring out why this conflict is happening, what this conflict is, what their goal means to them. Um, There's a whole bunch 
bunch of stuff happening in act one. Um, and so by the time we get to the end of act one, that is the moment where your protagonist is like, I am in, they put their money down and they're like, I'm ready to go on this thing. Um, and they are deeply enmeshed in the conflict. Whereas at the beginning, they're not. So that act changes their relationship with the conflict. And as I saw that happening, you know, when I was looking at all of these act delineations and trying to figure out what makes this part of the story different from this part of the story, that is what I saw happening, that we're changing our relationship with the conflict. So act two is where that relationship escalates. Again, if you look at sea change, right, we start the conflict in act one, right, at the beginning of act one. We escalate, we escalate, we escalate, money down, I'm in, let's go, right? Then it's escalate, 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 escalate. So when you think about the modularity of sea change, that you do these things, it's really like sea change, right? You know, <laughs> because it's, it's, it's start, escalate, 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 keep escalating, mm -hmm. and then you end it, and then you change the world, right? So it's that middle E that just does so much of the work here. Um, so the the escalation that happens throughout, and then we get that like in act two, right? We're escalating, we're escalating, we're escalating, we're escalating. At the end of act two, it becomes life or death or figuratively life or death. It is at that point where a world in which the protagonist loses this conflict feels like death to them or is literal death to them. Um, so there is no turning back. There's no going back. They must move forward because what's at stake is too much. And creating escalations in what's at stake is also a big part of that process. So once again, the relationship with the conflict changes, right? In act two, it's already, they're already committed, but by the end of act two, they have no choice. Like, you know, wanting to do something and knowing you can back out is one thing. Needing to do something and knowing that you can't is another. And that is a change in the relationship with the central narrative conflict. Then we move into act three, where the conflict is then we escalate again. It is then we get the climax and the winner is decided. Again, winner does not have to be the protagonist. I've talked about that a lot. We'll set that aside for right now. But somebody needs to win that conflict. And then how has the world changed at the end? That is the end of that. Um, but understanding acts in that they they go by the relationship of the conflict um, to the or the relationship of the protagonist to the conflict, um, that that is something that really helped me kind of figure out what it is that I, what is my goal in an act? What am I doing as a writer in an act? And that is what I am doing. And you can, again, ex you know, like expand that out. It doesn't have to be three acts. You can do five acts. You can do 12. You can do 22 acts based on the major arcana of the tarot. Whatever you want to do, as long as you're escalating and changing that relationship as you go, you're doing great. Um, so finally, now that we've gone through the acts, what I want to talk about a little bit is composition. Now, this is a term that I actually have sort of made. I mean, it's obviously a term that exists in the world before me, um, but I have stolen it and, and molded it to my theory because I wanted a word for the final product, right? Um, you know, we'll say, you know, a final product is a book or it's a movie or it's a screenplay or it's a graphic novel or whatever. But the thing is, is that like my theory is really not about the form that you write in, but that you are completing a story. And I didn't have a word for what was a complete story. Um, so now I am pulling that in and I'm stealing composition and I am applying this definition to it for the purposes of my theory. Um, so all narrative units 
habits, again, are expressions of narrative change. Any of them can stand on their own as an individual composition if they have a narrative conflict at their core, right? If you have a narrative conflict at the core of a beat, you can have a very short, complete composition where there it starts with a conflict and then somebody wins and boom, there you go, right? Um, so all of them can stand on their own as individual composition. Um, but an individual composition is a narrative unit that launches, escalates, and resolves a central narrative conflict and then provides meaning for that conflict by showing how the world has changed. So that means that you have a goal-based conflict that you have started, escalated, um, ended, and shown how the world has changed. Um, and again, in the same way that all of these narrative units nest, you can have a complete composition in the course of a beat, in the course of a scene, in the course of whatever. Those are little mini narratives, but the one composition um, that is complete is the story that you've told combining all of those, right? That is your composition. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So then if you're kind of looking at your nested dolls, right, mm -hmm. for structure, then you have your composition. Yes. Crack that open. You see acts. Mm -hmm. Crack that open. You've got anchor scenes. Mm -hmm. You crack that open. You've got scenes. You crack that open. You've got beats. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Makes total sense to me. Yeah. Um, it is. I think it's one of those things where the words get used in so many different ways. They you do. You know, mm -hmm. that, um, that it can be almost like, okay, which which one am I building right here, and and how do I string these together? Um, and it's funny because I am not what you would call a plotter, mm -hmm. yes, <laughs> or mm -hmm. an organized writer <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. But I can visualize what that would look like, like if I was going to map out a story mm -hmm. on a on a whiteboard, right, right? or even mm -hmm. on a spreadsheet. That that makes sense to me. I could color code. Mm -hmm a script or a novel or whatever mm -hmm. to kind of break that down into yes. these bigger components, mm -hmm. right? And it helps me when I was thinking about acts or scenes, I'm like, where could you hit pause mm -hmm. and be okay with the emotional experience of a story? Yes. Mm -hmm. So if you needed to pause for a second mm -hmm. and you're at the end of a scene, that's yes. okay, mm -hmm. right? You pause in the middle of a scene, you're you're losing momentum. Yeah, there's if, energy and tension that's, yeah, that's remaining if, there. Mm -hmm. If you need to pause for just a second and you're at the end of a scene, it's almost like a natural breath, like you had talked about before with, with beats and music. Like that beats are built into different compositions sometimes to take a breath. Yes. And and then I think if you need an intermission, mm -hmm. those are that's between your acts. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of – and it's almost intuitive when mm -hmm. you think about how you experience a story. Yes. Mm -hmm. But it's helpful for me to kind of think about it like that. So I've got these bigger blocks mm -hmm. that then would actually have these smaller blocks inside right. them. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that I could never write that way, but I could go back and revise that way. That's how I revise. Like the biggest problem for me is forgetting all of this during drafting and just writing whatever. Like right. that is the really important thing. And that is probably the hardest thing to do once you learn narrative theory and you know it cold. One quick, quick clarification I wanted to make is that when we were talking about like you crack open an anchor scene and there's scenes inside, an anchor scene in a scene, like an anchor scene is a type, is of, a scene. type of scene. Right. So yes. I just wanted to, to yeah. make make sure yes, that yes. I, I made that clear because I thought that might be confusing. But one of the things that, yeah, like these terms have been thrown around for a really long time. And my problem was I started writing 
Um, you know, I wrote a book during NaNoWriMo and then I didn't know how to like, I, I knew instinctively what stories were and it was a good book and it, but I didn't understand what I had done. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't understand how it worked or why I did certain things at certain times and yada, yada, yada. Um, and so I went into all of the writing books and all of the instruction to look for things. And I found like these little bits and pieces, but they weren't defined clearly enough for me. You know, like a lot of times I would be like, what is an act? And they'd be like, well, an act's an act. You know, it's it's a bunch of scenes together. I'm like, yeah, but what defines the beginning, the end of the act? And I couldn't get a really strong definition of mm-hmm. it. So um, so what I have done is I've taken these things that I could not find strong definitions for um, and defined them in terms of this particular theory to help people really understand how they work. Um, because once you do that, then you can go into your, you know, big mess. If you're a, if you're a pantser like me, right? You need to draft and just draft and just write it and not think about any of this stuff and then go in and revision and think about it. If you're a plotter, knowing this stuff ahead of time can also be helpful. Um, But the hard thing to do is as a pantser is to separate all of that out, to take that knowledge, set it aside, not worry about it while you're writing and then go back and fix it later. Um, That's how it needs to be done. Very, very challenging. But for me, I couldn't do any of it until I understood what it all was and how it all worked exactly. Right. And I have to say it out loud so like even Mm -hmm. just that clarification a second ago Mm -hmm. of scenes and anchor scenes like i helped edit how story works (laughs) i'm reading this script right now Uh but it is still different when i am explaining this or reminding this to myself yes so like i would want to go back and say okay your big outer shell is a composition then you have acts then you have scenes some of which may be anchor scenes scenes. yes Mm -hmm. and then inside your scenes you have beats yes so like i even have to go back to kind of clarify that for myself. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's really helpful Yeah, when you're really trying to kind of keep these things in mind in terms of your it structure, takes a while. Yeah. that it really does take a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and then I'm just laughing because I'm like, oh, all scenes are, are furry, but, but right. not all <laughs> scenes are foxes. Like it's, <laughs> but you can, I catch myself exactly. with that, mm-hmm. even as much as I have studied this work with you. That I still need to go back and right. articulate I mean, it again. I mean, sometimes I need to do that too. And I wrote it. Yeah, like, I, mean, I built this. I've taught <laughs> this for years at a college level. Like I have taught this theory. Um, and sometimes I will find myself being like, okay, now let me get this straight in my head. You know, yeah. um, the reason I struggled so much with the structure um, section, because I was like, these definitions are really, really important. And I need to make sure that all of them were absolutely correct. And every now and again, I'd be like, no, there's something wrong with that. Yeah. And it would take me forever to to tease out what exactly it was, yeah. you know, um, which is the whole purpose of how story works is oh, so yeah. that, so that everybody can understand all of these things because it took me forever to figure it out on mm-hmm. my own. Well, you know? and especially mm-hmm. with words like these mm-hmm. that get used so much in so many ways. They do. Um, and it reminds me one of my favorite experiences grading mm-hmm. a paper, which is not a sentence that I would right. say very often, but I was, you know, working with, um, kind of early level graduate students. Mm-hmm. And when you're trying to really shift an appreciation of citations mm-hmm. and what they're for, what you cite and what mm-hmm. you don't, like it's, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot, yeah. you know? And so I had a paper and there was a, there was a, a statement in there that needed a citation. Mm-hmm. And so I marked it, Hey, citation needed here. Mm-hmm. Come back and add this and bring it back to me. And the student took the paper and, sent it back and there was a footnote by that statement and the, 
the citation for that footnote literally said, general knowledge, semicolon, everyone knows this. (laughs) And that has become like one of my favorite forms of citation. But I think Mm -hmm. when you're thinking about something, Mm -hmm. if someone's like, what's a scene? What's an act? What you would say, well, everybody knows what we know it when we see it. Right, right? exactly. Everybody knows what mm-hmm. that is. But having more clarity for yourself yeah. in terms of how you're watching a story or how you're mm-hmm. reading a story, how mm-hmm. you're structuring your own work, or even right. how you're taking things apart and kind of labeling the structure in mm-hmm. stories that you already know. Mm-hmm. It this really is where nitty gritty yeah. work mm-hmm. leads to that broader clarity. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. um, so it's, it's just really, really interesting. Um, and I think beats are especially challenging. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so to make that fun, there is a, so this is one of my favorite parts of the uh, How Story uh, Works uh, book. I love <laughs> this scene. I love this scene. Uh, so we are going to use this performance. Yes. Uh, to illustrate. Yes. My, my husband, Ian Martin, has agreed to, uh, to play these parts um, and, of course, did a wonderful job. I am doing uh, the narration and the voice of Rosie. Um, and uh, and so we did this so that we would have this theme. This is a scene that I wrote early on when I first started teaching this class. Um, my students would be like, oh, my God, 15 pages. How am I going to write a 15 page script? That's so much. You know, and I'm like, oh, my God, first of all, kiss my ass. Second of all, I will do it with you. <laughs> and so for the first few semesters that I taught this class, I was like, I will write. I will do the exact process with you. I will write. So I wrote this um, um, this like little play, this little uh, three or 15 minute screenplay. Um, and it was so fun. I had a really good time with it. So it's one of these things that I use when I need an example of like, this is what all of this is. Um, one of the nice things too, is that when you have something that you have written and you go back and diagram it out, this is a beat, this is a mm-hmm. beat, this is a scene, yada, yada, yada. That is one of the best ways to learn, um, first of all, how you do things, um, how it works for you. Um, and also understanding those units of change and understanding if you have a really long beat where nothing has changed, you might want to take a look at that. That yeah. might be a pacing issue within your story. So I would go back and diagram a scene from your current um, work in progress and see how you feel about that um, because it's really, really interesting when you go back and diagram your stuff. Um, but as we go, uh, I will be interrupting the performance to kind of talk about what the beat was, what happened during that beat and and how that kind of works with the analog of the white room, right? Okay. All right. So here we go uh, with a scene from Orange. Exterior, playground, daytime. A lovely fall day. Children are running, screaming, laughing. Parents are supervising. Life is idyllic and mundane. A dad, mid-forties, stands to the side, ignoring his son on the swing set while he pokes at his phone. Dad, watch me. See how high I can go. Rosie, six, sits nearby in the sandbox, making bucket-shaped blocks of sand with her orange plastic bucket and watching. Yeah, that's great, buddy. From behind, we see Slenderman, age indeterminable, step beside the dad. Slenderman is unnaturally tall and thin. He wears a pristine black suit and has the complexion of the dead. 
Throughout, we never see all of Slenderman's face in full focus. We do see the uneasy reactions of the people around him. Slenderman watches the kids on the swings. The dad glances at Slenderman, gives a casual fake smile, and glances away. Then he slowly raises his eyes back to Slenderman, his expression horrified, although he doesn't seem quite sure why. Still, he can't seem to look away. The dad puts the phone in his pocket, still staring at Slenderman. He swallows. So you, uh, you got a kid out here? Slenderman's voice is casual but strange, almost as if it's been slightly auto-tuned. No. The dad manages to pull his eyes away from Slenderman, and he hustles toward his son. He pulls the kid off the swing gracelessly in a panicked hurry. Slenderman stands and watches. But I don't want to go yet. You said we could stay a whole hour. Why are we leaving now? The dad glances in Slenderman's direction and seems a little confused himself. I, uh, I gotta go to work, buddy. The dad hustles the kid away. All right, so here we have the first beat. Uh, we see Slender Man at the park, and through the reaction of the other dad, the quote-unquote normal dad, we see that Slender Man is creeping people out, right? Um, so our first unit of narrative establishes our scene's status quo, or our scene's empty white room, right? Mm-hmm. Slender Man wants to be around people, but he makes them uncomfortable. So that is the start of the story. That is our white room. That is our status quo. Rosie looks up at Slenderman with a curious expression. Hey, you don't got a family? No, I don't. Rosie stands there a moment in silence, thinking. I don't got a dad. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, he ran off like a goddamn dickless wonder. That's what my mom says. It's his loss. Yeah, that's what my mom says too. Rosie points toward the neighborhood homes visible nearby. I live in that house over there. The one with half the roof is green, you see it? Slenderman takes a moment, shielding his eyes from the sun to look. That looks like a nice house. It's a piece of goddamn crap. Is that what your mom says? No. All right, so this is the second beat of narrative change. An event has happened. The young girl has seen him and talked to him and not been afraid. Slenderman was actually able to connect with another human, which is, of course, what he wants. So this is like a red ball dropping from the ceiling, right? We have a change in the status quo. Now we have a new status quo. Rosie is special and might be someone who can really see Slenderman and connect with him. Um, So now we have a white room with a red ball, and that is the new place that we are at. And when we we have another change that's when we will complete it another beat it must be nice to have a house and a family i guess i have a brother i don't like him he bosses all the time you don't have a house even no no brothers or sisters no mom no xbox <laughs> no well how mister what do you got I have a job. Oh, what's your job? I watch. Sounds boring. Well, I'm supposed to be better at it. I'm supposed to talk to people, to connect, to understand them, but people seem afraid of me. He brushes off his jacket sleeve. Does this suit seem off-putting to you? Yep. Slender Man nods. 
Okay, so here's another beat. Slenderman confides in Rosie that he's supposed to connect with people but can't. We also see that Rosie does see that he's weird. Uh, she's just not really bothered by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rosie has also shared vulnerability with Slenderman, sharing about her father um, in the previous beat and about her brother. Um, and shared vulnerability between people is what allows them to connect. This is true in life. This is true in fiction. Uh, so now we have a red ball in our white room and the red ball begins to shake. Um, so it's showing that there's some kind of force coming from the hole in the ceiling from which it dropped yeah and plus i just love rosie rosie's so so sweet every day when i get dressed for work Mm -hmm. i'm just gonna text you and be like does this suit seem off-putting to you (laughs) and i just want you to say yes yes (laughs) rosie rosie was so much fun to write i really really enjoyed writing her knock knock i'm sorry you say who's there i say knock knock and you say who's there And I say, Apple. And you say, Apple who? Don't you even know how a joke works? I I think I can follow your instructions. Okay. Knock, knock. Who's there? Apple. Apple who? Knock, knock. Who's there? Apple. Apple who? Knock, knock. I don't see where this is going. Banana. Banana what? Banana who? Say, banana who? Oh, yeah, yes, certainly. A uh, banana who? Rosie! Both Rosie and Slenderman look up to see Frank, a lanky 15-year-old kid who's all bones and length and way older than his years, rushing toward them. I swear to God, I turn my back for one minute. Mom said I can come out here to play when I want to. As long as I can see the house from where I'm at, I can play. And there's the house. He grabs her hand and looks up at Slenderman, clearly battling his own discomfort. You stay the hell away from my sister, you hear me? Okay, so here we are, right? We have our shaking red ball of some kind of force of wind coming through the ceiling. That was where we left it. Um, Slenderman and Rosie, we've seen, are bonding. They're becoming friends. They're sharing jokes. Uh, but they get interrupted. The only person Slenderman has been able to connect with is being taken away. So the red ball floats back in the air, back up toward the ceiling, right? And And here, too, you know, and again, when we talked about three beats, like they are different Mm -hmm. but you get that sense of hanging Mm -hmm. anticipation here because slender man gets a little bit of the knock knock joke a little bit but he doesn't get to the orange and like we all know it's coming so we're waiting Mm -hmm. for that final beat right and i think intentionally leaving that out Mm -hmm. shows kind of like he's really missing part of this basic connection like Mm -hmm. he's just not going to get it yes because of that interruption it was amazing to me like you were able to use a knock-knock joke (laughs) to like truly illustrate Mm -hmm. that separation that he's having Mm -hmm. from people yeah um in there so like a hanging three beat you know an incomplete that's how you create that tension that can be really helpful as a writer Mm -hmm. really really works within this scene because i want to go find him and be like okay let me finish this joke let me finish like you just need to know how it ends (laughs) you know (laughs) so great i love that joke shut up frank he's my friend his name is Hmm. what's your name mister slenderman looks at her his head cocked name he doesn't seem to have thought about that. His name is Jimmy. Slenderman gives a slight nod of acceptance. He is now Jimmy. 
Okay, this is like the shortest and my favorite beat in the whole thing because Slenderman does not have an identity, yeah. right? He is just Slenderman. He's just this dude, right? But now he has an identity, which is Jimmy. And I cannot tell you how incredibly powerful identity is in storytelling because it means so much to all of us. Um, and so when we see what that means to a character in a story, um, it is hugely, hugely powerful. So she gives him this identity he is jimmy this is a huge change being named changes him fundamentally um so the red ball let's say now changes in color it is now yellow so here we have we start out with a white room a red ball fell in that was one unit of change then it started uh coming back up towards the ceiling like it was gonna leave and it was shaking that was another change now the red ball is not red anymore it is yellow because of this fundamental change in identity very short beat Super powerful. And he's coming for dinner. He didn't have no family. Any family. You know how mom likes to invite people with no family? That's at Thanksgiving. Say goodbye, Rosie. He pulls Rosie away and she turns back, tossing her orange bucket at Jimmy, who catches it easily. You can bring it back when you come to dinner. Frank pulls on Rosie even more, moving faster, and Rosie fights him to look back at Jimmy. We eat at 6 o'clock every night. It's taco night. I'll tell mom you're coming. Frank yanks her, not hurting her, but making his point clear. Rosie angles herself stubbornly to wave at Jimmy. From behind, we see Jimmy's hand rise. Five unnaturally pale fingers extend and then curl, one by one, back into his palm. In the other hand, he clutches the handle of the orange plastic bucket. All right, so that is the final um, beat in the scene. So you see that this is an entire scene, mm-hmm. right, where we've had this fundamental change that uh, Slenderman, who went to the park looking for connection, not having it, looking to be able to, you know, to make a friend, um, not even looking to have an identity, right, now leaves with an identity, now leaves with a connection with another human, right? Um, it's huge. He also has an orange bucket. I don't know what that means. What does that mean? I don't know. Um, so Okay, yeah. but I have to ask. Yes. Was that subconscious or did you do it on purpose that the missing beat from the knock-knock banana joke is, orange, you glad I didn't say banana, <laughs> and the bucket is in fact orange? So like, did you do that on purpose? Because it's I am, really well done. I am not going to lie. Complete accident. It yeah. was just the visual that was in my head. That was it. And I stole that joke from my kid who did that exact thing to me, <laughs> who went on forever, forever, forever with Banana Who until I was like, oh my God, kid, I can't even anymore. Right. Um, but that is the thing. Okay. I w- I'm really glad that you asked that question. And I'm also glad that I answered it fucking honestly, because yeah. this is the thing is that a lot of times people will come to you and they'll be like, oh my God, you did this thing. Did you do this deliberately? Blah, blah, blah. And then a lot of writers be like well yes of course i knew exactly what i was doing <laughs> i was pulling in camus and hints of sart you know and like all of that bullshit uh the thing is is that did i do it deliberately no but do i believe that it was deliberately done yes and this is the thing yes. is that we have all of these wells of meaning every night when you go to sleep you sleep soaking in wells of meaning and then you wake up in the morning and you're like i dreamt i was an ice cube i don't know what that means you don't know what that means but it means something it's all symbolic it all means something um so to me i had this orange like i went into this story with this visual of this kid with this orange you know plastic bucket right um a bucket which is also like an empty thing that you then fill with something right you know 
So all of that stuff, the fact that the end of the joke, the, the way the joke should have ended is, aren't you glad I didn't say apple or banana or whatever it is? <laughs> I forget now. My kid is, has completely altered that joke for me for the rest of my life. Um, but that, that he then has an orange bucket and that there is that like symmetry there was not deliberate. And yet it means what it means, mm -hmm. you know, like that meaning is still there, whether I meant it deliberately or whether I consciously went into it saying that is what I'm doing, yeah. which I absolutely did not. Well, and what I love about this too, I mean, this is a very short mm -hmm. script, mm -hmm. right? But, but in this scene, when you're following those beats, like you talk about escalating conflict mm -hmm. and escalating conflict. That isn't always like, mm -hmm. and then yes. their purse got stolen, and then they got hit by a car, and then they got fired. Like, it's not that. Yes. But at the very beginning of this, you know, very short snippet, we have Jimmy, and the biggest thing he has to lose is he's not going to be able to have a conversation with somebody at this park. Right. But mm -hmm. now... He has a name. Mm -hmm. He has a friend. Mm -hmm. He has the plans to go have dinner mm -hmm. with a family. Mm -hmm. He has a bucket, mm -hmm. which means he, he has this potential for someone to help him fill those things. He now has things to lose. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He now has things that matter that he didn't have. Mm -hmm. And you're escalating conflict. You're escalating tension. He's yes. He's more invested. Like things matter now. So mm -hmm. when you're talking about kind of that, you know, the ball in the room shaking or meaning or whatever, there are now things that exist for him mm -hmm. that he cares about. And you can use all of that when you're building conflict or you're escalating conflict. Yes. But you illustrated so much of that in very few words. <laughs> um, and I just, it, it's just fascinating <laughs> to me. It's, it's, it was really fun writing that story. And you're absolutely right. And this is the thing that I'm so glad that you brought up. Um, because escalations, when you talk about escalations, sometimes that can get a little overwhelming. If you're thinking about like, I always think of Glenn, Gary, Glenn Ross, always be close like I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm, I guess Alec Baldwin, I don't know who it was who said that in that movie, but always be escalating, always be escalating. And here's the thing. Escalations are increases in tension. When you're talking about on the beat level, like an escalation is a small nudge. Having something to lose is a huge yes. escalation. Having something they didn't have before that matters, like an identity, like a friend, that is a huge escalation. Um, and yet when you're reading it, it doesn't feel like an escalation. But as a reader, at the start of this scene, you're like, hey, there's this thing happening. At the end of the scene, you're like, oh, you're invested. Yes. Right? That's an escalation. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't have to be that, you know, somebody's at the park and suddenly a SWAT team descends from the sky. <laughs> That's not always the way you want to escalate, depending, of course, on the kind of story that you're talking about. Right. Um, but giving a character something to lose, massive escalation. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Or showing that they are invested yes. more. Mm -hmm. You know, and how that has changed mm -hmm. um, in there that I just I just think that that is so it, it's it's just beautifully illustrated in this. And mm -hmm. I think that you can show that in a beat mm -hmm. uh, in ways that are very, very powerful. So yes. like uh, yesterday we watched But I'm a Cheerleader. Yeah, my very, very favorite I love things. that movie. And, and you have to, you know, two of those characters, Megan mm -hmm. and Graham, mm -hmm. are in there kind of in the I mean, it's such a good romantic it's comedy, um, mm -hmm. kind of in the bickering like i don't like you stage mm -hmm. um and then you have a very simple conversation over lunch mm -hmm. where one person says something kind of mean to megan mm -hmm. and graham just like fights back at them yeah. on her behalf mm -hmm. it's super quick there's mm -hmm. a brief moment of eye contact between the two of them 
But you can see in that one sentence how that entire relationship has escalated. They both have more to lose. They're both more invested. Mm -hmm. And it's beautifully done when you think about kind of the power of each of those beats. Mm -hmm. Like, what impression are you making in this second to show what has changed? And good things are escalations. Yes. Like having something to lose. That's huge. Yeah. You know, having, risking something, you know, I mean, that's a big escalation. And of course your escalations, the longer, the bigger the story you have, the broader the scope of the story that you have, um, the more you're going to have to do with those escalations, right? So understanding these little tiny things as escalations within a particular scene and how that builds the tension and everything that there is going on in that story, like that is a huge lesson in and of itself. Because when we think about escalation, we think about these huge moments, but every escalation is this series of incremental nudges, you know, and when you just do that, and you keep that going, that creates that tension. Mm -hmm. And also like missing that third beat, again, like the choice not to do not to complete not to close the loop on that joke. If you don't close a loop, your reader is going to be like, eh, you know, and feel that and that's what you want them to do. Well, and the way that you did that in this scene works really well because I am genuinely worried about Jimmy mm-hmm. showing up for dinner, carrying his orange bucket mm-hmm. and not being let in mm-hmm. or being rejected or being sent away. Right. You know, There's like a lot you, to risk. You've built that concern, mm-hmm. you know, for that character. In such a short amount of space. Especially because the brother already hates him. I know. You know? And like, I'm really yeah. worried about him. It's, you know? it's a lot of worry. For anybody who is uh, remains worried, I will put the whole script up as a PDF that yes, you can please download do. in I the show notes. I love that script. I and love I will that make script. sure that y'all have, uh, have that whole thing so that you don't have to sit there and live in tension. But while we are still in this, you know, educational portion of our program, um, we'll go ahead and move forward. Now, that, again, was a series of beats, which I wanted to illustrate because I think that those are the hardest to understand. Um, And then that completed a scene, which was, you know, one uh, continuous series, chronologically continuous series of beats. Um, And uh, and so we have have beats and we have a scene um, and that all came together. Um, We saw in the course of the scene, we start out with Slender Man being alone and then, of course, having a bucket and being able to go to dinner. And the other thing that I find really funny about all of this, and this is just an aside, um, my husband is Ian Martin. He's Passion of the Nerd on YouTube. He does a lot of um of buffy stuff uh kelly and i some of you may have listened to the still dead podcast yeah. uh where we uh did an analysis of the angel uh buffy the vampire slayer spinoff angel uh which was loads of fun but there is one little moment in one of those episodes in which the character of wesley has been and this is terrible but there's a whole bunch of context around this has been keeping this woman um in his closet and his threat to her when she's about to like, you know, kill him, right? <laughs> she's coming up behind him with a big wrench in her hand is, I'll take away your bucket. And there's something <laughs> about that that I find like incredibly sexy. Again, there's a lot of context involved in this. Go watch the show before you judge me and then absolutely judge me. But uh, a long time ago when Ian and I were still friends, he said, you know, what do you want your button to be that when you come into my live, you know, chats and stuff like that, that I'll play a little, you know, clip of a scene for you. And I said, I'll take away your bucket. And so every time I would come in, he'd have to play that. And it was always hilarious because he would get so incredibly uncomfortable. So having him record (laughs) this scene (laughs) in which the character that I'm playing gives his character a bucket 
it's just kind of cute. See, it's just another added layer. It's just there's poetic. so many yes. layers. I'll take like away a your bucket. Pastry is yes. always going to be one of my favorite things. <laughs> um, but again, like and and kind of the reason for illustrating like that scene and mm-hmm. going through yes. it is that things have changed mm-hmm. at the end of that scene. Yes, and cannot go back. Right. Right. You can't undo it. He's yeah. Jimmy now. Even mm-hmm. if you throw Slender Man back in a solid white room, he mm-hmm. now knows what it looks like exactly. with a red shaking balloon exactly. in it. Exactly. You know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, oh, yeah. it's just fabulous. And I love, so I love fun. that story so much. It's so fun. I had a really good time writing that story yeah. and proving to all of my students that, yes, you can write 15 pages. It's not going to kill you. Right. Um, especially in screenplay format. It's really not that much. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So moving forward um, into acts, mm-hmm. right? Um, acts are, again, a series series of scenes. So we have a feel for how these matryoshka dolls of story work. Um, So now it may be easier for you to envision an act in which a bunch of scenes work together to create a larger unit of change, which is the act. Um, And of course, the change that happens in an act should actually alter your protagonist's relationship to the central narrative conflict. Um, and for instance, the beginning of act one, your protagonist might not even be aware, like we we're talking about before, of any conflict in their life at all. But by the end of act one, money's on the table, they're in, they're going into this conflict, absolutely ready to fight for whatever their goal is. So and hopefully that makes sense. Took me forever to understand what an act was. Yeah. I'm very happy to well, get that Well, I think to too, mm-hmm. if, you, if you were diagramming mm-hmm. that, right, you could look at each act mm-hmm. and ask, what does my protagonist believe about this central narrative conflict? Yes. Mm-hmm. And those will be different. They will be different. When they are broken down into acts. Yes. And at mm-hmm. what point does their understanding of that central narrative conflict right. change? Then you know you're looking at an anchor That scene. is the moment where the, and that is the thing, the changes in acts pivot ideally. And again, like every story that you go and look at, some of them may not even have, any of this because they're just a series of events that happen and they may have meaning and magic that is in other spaces. This is all about structure and craft um, to help you build a story. Um, But there are lots of things out there that are also really great that don't have any of this. Um, But this is ideally, I think, how stories, you know, I'm going to say, a story with a lot of magic that's really awesome would be more awesome if it had this. This is just my personal bent. This is just what I believe. But if you're thinking about building a story, mm-hmm. right? And what kind of architect do you want to be? Mm-hmm. Right. And if you're if you're aiming for strong narrative structure, mm-hmm. then these are the components that you're going to use to put that together. Right. So you'll have yes. your beats, you'll have your scenes, mm-hmm. some of which will be anchor scenes. Yes. Mm-hmm. You'll have your acts. Mm-hmm. And then when all of that comes together into a completed work where you start with a central narrative conflict, you escalate that conflict, you resolve that conflict, you change the world, you have a composition. Um, the point I was going to make is that each of those acts pivot on an active choice, ideally, right? Um, so ideally, at the end of act uh, one, your character knows and is consciously making a choice that they are going to go into this, you know, thing. At the end of act two, they know that it's life or death. And instead of running away, they're going to go forward into this con- into this conflict. So that was the point I was trying to make. Thank you very much. Um, all right. So now we've got beats, which build into scenes. We've got scenes that build into acts. And then we've got compositions. A composition is a complete narrative unit that launches, escalates, and resolves a central narrative conflict. So it is a complete story unto itself. 
Um, and again, anything that has a narrative, like if you have a scene that has a narrative conflict at the center and that tiny little narrative conflict, uh, which is a conflict again, based in goals has, um, a start escalations ends, and changes things, even in the course of the scene, you could consider that scene to be a complete story unto itself and a composition. So you can have compositions within compositions again, nested as well. Um, but the composition is the complete narrative unit. So if you have done all of these things and you have got this entire book, you know, screenplay, graphic novel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, where you have taken a central narrative conflict and, you know, started it, escalated, ended it and changed the world, that is a composition. Um, and again, this is a term that I pulled in and assigned this definition to so that I had a word for what it means when you've completed a story. Yeah. You know, because you can have a scene that does this. You know, um, you can have an act that does this to a certain degree that is also part of a bigger composition. Um, but the thing, the reason why I really wanted to have this clearly defined and have this be part of our narrative unit discussion is that sometimes uh, people will write a book and they will stop it in the middle of the story not complete the story and be like, come on back, you know, right. with some kind of cliffhanger or whatever. Um, and that is the kind of thing that I really want to stop people from doing um, because I hate that. I hate when I buy a movie or when I get a book or when I do something and then I find it's over and the story has not been completed. That central narrative conflict has not been resolved. It remains open. Um, I find that an offense against like everything that I stand for. Um, so when you're thinking about a composition, when you are finishing your book, your screenplay, your graphic novel, your comic, whatever it is that you're working on, just finish the story. It's okay. You can change the world. You've changed the world. That gives us an awesome opportunity for a game changer um, in which you are actively changing, you know, the, uh, the, the rules or the, or the way that that world works in that, you know, in the stories that you're telling. I'm absolutely certain I've done a How Story Works on the difference between cliffhangers and game changers. You can go ahead and look that up. I've talked about it a number of times. Uh, finish your thing. Make sure that you have a complete composition in whatever story it is that you're selling. That's that's my, I'm begging you. Yes. Yeah. But that's not to say don't write a series. It's just. Oh, no. You so can absolutely write a series. With the series, you have multiple compositions. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right? Multiple that, compositions. That all go together. Mm -hmm. But within each composition, you have. Completed some, that central narrative conflict. Yeah. Yes. And then yes. you can continue a bigger one that stitches them all together. Absolutely. But there should be a resolution yes. of sorts at each point. Yes. In that series. So like every episode within uh, ideal, again, ideally you'll find examples where this isn't absolutely done. And this is again, why I do the work that I do so that people stop doing that. <laughs> tell your, tell your damn story, complete your story, please. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like in a TV series, like uh, Buffy, right. I've talked about Buffy a lot. Um, every season of Buffy was a complete story. Um, and then every episode of Buffy was a complete story, was a composition within that bigger series, which also, had mm -hmm. um, had a complete arc. Now you can do a series that is just a bunch of episodic compositions in which they don't build on themselves. So for instance, we're talking about Marissa Meyer and the Lunar Chronicles, all of these uh, steampunk fairy tales, which are so, so cool, definitely recommended. Um, but these are stories that are, they have different, um, you know, 
know, heroines at the center of each one. And you will see them sort of interacting with each other, like a heroine from one book, maybe in the background of another book. Um, but they're all each independent stories and they don't really have one big story, at least from the, the ones that I read. Um, they don't really have one big story that they are all escalating to complete. And that's fine. It's a series. They're interrelated, right? They, they exist within the same, um, story world. Uh, so, so that's fine. Like you don't have to have a series that also has a story arc in it. Um, but when you do, it's amazing. I will absolutely read it because I love that shit. Um, but a series is just a series of compositions of related compositions. So, um, so that's and I that do, works. I do really like that with the Lunar Chronicles because you do get a lot out of them if you read them in order, but mm -hmm. you can also read them out of order and you still get that. Yes, this is a complete story. Yes. You know, mm -hmm. uh, which is, is just fantastic. I really enjoy those books. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So now we're in our, our homework portion of the program. Um, and the homework I would like to assign to you all is either to take something you have written and diagram it out, identify the beats, identify the scenes, identify the acts, identify all of that. Um, or if you don't have something that you've written that you can do that with, just write a scene and then look at the beats and think about how these beats escalate. How do they change the world? And how has the world changed for the interiority of your protagonist or the external world of your protagonist? If you really want to do a scene that slaps, sure, uh, <laughs> that's a big deal. Um, but how you escalate all of that within the beats of the story and how you look at all the beats that you've written and see what you see, how you feel about that. I think that diagramming um, can really, really help. And if you don't have anything that you have written yet, then take something by one of your favorite authors and just pull it out and just tear it apart and take a look at it and do the analysis. Um, that is uh, honestly, one of the best ways to learn story is to analyze stories that you love. Yeah, so. absolutely. Mm -hmm. So speaking of loving what you love, yes. what stories are you loving right now? Oh my God. You know, what's really funny. I'm, I'm really into John Green novels right now. Mm -hmm. uh, John Green, for those of you who are not familiar, you should be. I absolutely adore him and his brother, Hank. Um, John and Hank Green are the brothers who started Vlog Brothers on YouTube many years ago. It became very successful and they t decided to take that success and put it into 8 million wonderful things that make the world a better place. Um, but John Green, um, in addition to being a YouTube, uh, you know, social media star, um, is also a novelist. He wrote The Fault in Our Stars is probably the biggest novel that um, everybody knows um, from him. Um, but I have found his novels. I avoided them because of The Fault in Our Stars, because anything where spoilers, you know, children get sick or die is always a really um, the terrifying thing for me. Ever since I became a mother, I can't engage with those stories. Um, but I loved him so much that I grabbed um, Turtles All the Way Down, mm -hmm. um, which is a YA novel. Um, and it's it's with a, you know, a man writing a girl. Mm -hmm. um, which I always have a little bit of tension with because sometimes you don't understand the experience. I think he did an excellent job. Um, but he wrote this, this lovely young girl who um, struggles with mental illness um, and, um, and some OCD behaviors, I believe, um, a lot of anxiety and all of that. And it was so wonderfully written and so humanly and empathetically written. And I absolutely love that it gives a hero mental illness and shows us how heroic people can be even with, 
oh my goodness, anxiety and mental illness, and that that doesn't preclude people from becoming heroic. Um, and I just absolutely loved it. I love the way he writes. I love his philosophy. Um, and I'm actually looking at him um, and kind of his approach toward the way that he thinks about things so deeply to kind of deepen my own work. Um, and I'm really excited about about that and using that inspiration. Kelly, Tell me, what is it that you are loving now? So in my, I have been watching movies on airplanes, mm-hmm. um, which has been really fun. Um, I watched Lucy in the Sky mm-hmm. and I adored this movie. And I think I might be the only person who did. <laughs> but they kind of made it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, the The reviews um, on, on this movie are not great. <laughs> I don't care. I loved it. I loved it. Why did you love it? I what loved did it. you love about it? Tell me what you so, love. So this is the story um, of an astronaut who goes to space and then comes back to Earth and is somehow expected to just live a normal mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And what was fascinating to me, and of course that does not go very well, um, and this is starring Natalie Portman, who mm-hmm. did an amazing job. But what was so interesting to me was it raised a question I had never thought of asking, yeah. which is, oh, if you do go to outer space, <laughs> wh- what are you supposed to do when you get back? Right. Like, just run up to Starbucks and like <laughs> flip on Netflix. And like that is supposed to be like once yeah. you have seen. Mm-hmm. The vastness of the cosmos. Mm-hmm. How do you just go back to like right. running errands and doing laundry? Mm-hmm. Um, the cinematography in this movie was stunning. Mm-hmm. I loved the huge aerial shots. I loved the very close close-up shots. Um, mm-hmm. I loved the character of the grandmother. There's a three-beat in there with a gun and generational trauma that I think they did a great job mm-hmm. with. Um, but it is one of those movies that I keep thinking about. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the things that I really go to movies for. Right. Is like, are you going to make me ask questions that have not dawned on me uh-huh. before? Mm-hmm. Um, and this movie absolutely did. Um, but again, it just might just be me. Nobody <laughs> on the internet seems to like this movie. I loved Lucy in the Sky. I love that you loved it. And here's the thing. I tried to watch this movie. I got maybe 45 minutes in before I was like, nope, I just, and it wasn't even that anything particular in the movie pissed me off. I just couldn't take it anymore. It just bored me terribly. Um, So that said, um, the reason why the motto of Chipperish Media is love what you love is because some people are not going to like the same things that you like. Some people are not going to see what you see in something. That doesn't make it any less real. That doesn't make it any less valuable. Um, Again, I would say like every story benefits from the crafty stuff that I like to bring into stories, but not all stories are made for me. And that's okay. This is a story that was made for you. And maybe there's a lot of people like, honestly, the fact that a lot of people don't like it and you love it, I think makes you special. (laughs) I think it shows, it shows that there is a way that you can enjoy things that maybe is not as accessible to a lot of other people. So one of the things that happens is like, if we love something and then other people don't love it, sometimes we can feel shamed by that. Sometimes we feel like, oh, what did I not see? Yada, yada, yada. Don't do that. Take it an opportunity to like really appreciate how special you are that you loved this thing that so many other people failed to see the beauty in oh yeah i have none mm-hmm. of that like the movie's freaking awesome i know um, you don't but i think there are people <laughs> out there listening yes. who i and really I, want I to that understand that, that yeah that mm-hmm. is is a very common experience mm-hmm. um especially if you 
grow up where the movies or stories or whatever that you like are very different than the Mm -hmm. people who are raising you or who you're living with. So like I always had the kind of that snide, oh, that looks like a Kelly kind of movie. Like it's an insult, Mm -hmm. you know, or like that looks like one that you might like, like Mm -hmm. because there's something inherently wrong with what you like was Mm -hmm. basically the message. Um, And so many things that are, very very popular um you know are, are fine but they're i don't enjoy they don't speak to you. them in mm-hmm. the same way mm-hmm. i'm looking at you sports um <laughs> that i just I, it's great like i'm uh-huh. very glad people enjoy it, but mm-hmm. i just don't it's not what you're going it's for. just not what i'm going for um so i made peace a long time ago yeah. with the fact that like my stuff is not everybody else's stuff yeah. um and i don't care but i and i also have I have a difficult time getting into a movie, mm-hmm. um, kind of being on an airplane where there is nothing else I can do. Right. Because here's the thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not a total control freak, but I like being in charge. Yeah. And you know what you don't get to be yeah. on a plane is unless charge. you're a pilot? Right. You're not in charge of nothing. <laughs> nothing. I am in charge of nothing. And I, it's, it, it makes for a very long three or four hours. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So by watching movies that way, I've ended up watching a lot of movies mm-hmm. that, A, I would not take a couple hours out of mm-hmm. my day to watch. Um, it becomes a very interesting experience. There's something about watching a movie while you are flying many thousand feet in the air. Yeah. And somehow the Wi-Fi does not work well enough to send a text message and yet... <laughs> Can stream an entire movie to my phone? Like Southwest, the mystery of this, please explain this to me one day. I don't understand. Um, but it is kind of a, an opportunity of, of forced attention yeah. that I have found works really well for me. And so I don't know if I am able, if I'm almost more engaged with a movie because of the delimitations of the space sure, in which I'm absolutely. watching it, mm-hmm. that might be very different mm-hmm. than if I had put that movie on at home, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but it's really interesting. I've, I've ended up watching a lot of movies that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one, the visual language of the film got me beautiful. as much mm-hmm. as the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I super enjoyed it. And plus I love almost all astronaut movies. That's yeah. That's yeah, just kind of a genre really that I deeply appreciate, I love you it. know? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, The the Martian, Gravity, mm-hmm. Midnight Sky. Like, mm-hmm. I love all of those movies. Uh, so I super, super enjoyed that one. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. All right. If you'd like to join in the discussion, Patreon supporters can reach us through the Discord channel. And y'all can find me on TikTok. Just search for Lonnie Diane Rich or hashtag HowStoryWorks. I also have a writing-focused weekly newsletter. You can find that at dearwriter.substack.com. The How Story Works podcast and everything Chipperish Media does is made free to all by our generous patrons. If you're getting value out of this discussion, we ask that you help us by kicking a dollar or two a month our way so we can keep making these shows. This episode of How Story Works was brought to you by the Chipperish Media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why How Story Works is coming to you free and ad free right now. So thank you to our power producers. Alice, Christina, Erica, Gear, Holly, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rochelle, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stephanie, and Stephanie. 
Podcasts. And if you want to become a power producer, go to patreon.com slash chipperish. We'll be back next time with our discussion of different kinds of structures that you can use for your stories. For those of you with the How Story Works paperback book, this will cover pages 93 to 118. For Kindle and audiobook readers, that will be chapter six, Structure in Practice. See you then.